Good to see you here with us this morning. Okay. If you've got your Bibles, uh, please open to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Uh, we're, we're starting a new series looking at the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to do this over three parts. Uh, we're going to do the first part leading to Christmas, and we'll break over Christmas. Uh, and then we're going to jump to the end of the book leading into Easter, uh, and then we'll kind of fill in the middle somewhere later next year. So it's a, we're doing things a bit out of order, but... Uh, uh, We'll get there, we'll get there. But if you've got your Bibles, please open to John chapter 1. I'm actually going to read uh, one to eight, verses 1 to 18. Uh, but please, if you've got your Bibles, please follow along. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, who, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Let's pray before we look at these words any further. Heavenly Father, we come to your word, the Bible, and we ask you to speak. Help us to understand what you have for us, what you seek to say to us, and we ask that you would open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear and open our hearts to know. And we ask that your spirit would be amongst us, working in us, speaking to us and bringing life through your word. And Father, I pray that you will speak because you are the God who speaks, not me. So we commit this time now to you in Jesus' name. If you're talking to someone from another country and they're looking at you like you've got a few roos loose in the top paddock, 
It's likely they have literally no idea what you're saying. It's likely that some of you have no idea what I just said. Uh, Babbel, a language learning app, uh, did an international survey uh, to see if people could understand Australian slang. Uh, We're going to go through a few of these. Let's see how you go. Uh, Let's start with something easy. She'll be right. What does that mean? In the UK, they guess that the wife is always correct. Uh, in Russia, they thought it meant that she will be back in a minute. But we know that it means that everything will be fine. Uh, next one. You dumbhinger. You humdinger. Sweden. You fool. Uh, Philippines. You're boring. Uh, Poland, you smell bad. Uh, Did someone say what it was? No, you humdinger. It's a remarkable remarkable person or thing. Uh, Last one, flat out like a lizard drinking. (laughs) In the US, absolutely no idea. Now, I don't know if that means that they have absolutely no idea or if they think it means absolutely no idea. I, I, I flat out like a lizard drinking. Uh, in France, they think it means to have a flat tyre. Uh, Germany, spilling drinks everywhere. Uh, does anyone actually know what it means? To be very busy. Now, the problem is not that you don't know those words, flat out like a lizard drinking. You know what those words are. The problem is that you don't know them, maybe except for humdinger. That's... But there is more to words than the words themselves. Right? Words include knowledge, ideas, history, shared culture, experience, wisdom and so much more. Words are are never simply just the word themselves. And even in our age of social media, you've got Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and the whole lot, even though that is this growing means of communication, at the heart of it is still words. Meaningful stories or snaps include audio communication, captions, word stickers to make the message clear. Right? They're not just pictures or videos. Words are added to bring meaning. And it shouldn't surprise us then that God's primary way of communicating with us is through words. Because life involves words. Now whether that's the written words in the pages of the Bible, whether that's the words that are spoken in sermon, whether that's the words of knowledge and wisdom that fill our minds, or the emotions that fill our hearts, or the words that fill relationships and stories that we share as God's people. Words through time and space communicate who God is and reveals himself to us. He does that through words. And so we're starting this series uh, on John, 
And it's full of words. And it's written by uh, the disciple that Jesus loved. You read about this at the end of the book. It's written by the disciple that Jesus loved. uh, And he doesn't tell us who he is. But most people think that he is one of the apostles, the apostle John, uh, the son of Zebedee. Uh, He's also the same apostle who wrote the letters of John uh, and Revelation. Uh, and, and when he writes this, he writes this about 50 years after Jesus dies. He writes this about 50 years after Jesus' life. Why is that important? Uh, I normally don't get into that sort of detail with you guys, but why is that important? I think it's important because, firstly, this is a gospel. The gospel is about Jesus, right? But I think the time is important because the other gospels are actually written quite early. But John is written later, and so he gives you a completely different perspective. You read the other Gospels, and they give you this perspective of what happened. But when you read John, and this is the thing I love about John, when you read John, you get to go, does Jesus make a difference? Fifty years after Jesus has died, does Jesus make a difference to life at all? And so when you read John, you can ask that question. He's this guy who's lived for 50 years, and he's held on to Jesus, Is it worth it? Does it make a difference? And he writes 50 years afterwards from that perspective. So he's not just writing about the life of Jesus, but he's got a particular purpose in mind. And he tells us at the end of the the, the gospel, um, John 20, 30, 31, he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But listen to this. This is why he's written this whole gospel. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we go through this gospel, that's the whole point. We want to understand who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the the promised Messiah, the promised Savior to the people of Israel and to the world. He is the Son of God. And in believing in him, you might just find life. And so that's my prayer and that's my hope, that as we go through the Gospel of John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might find life. And so how does this open? How does John open this Gospel? Because all the other Gospels open with a story. In uh, Matthew and Luke, they open with the story of Jesus' genealogy and family tree. In Mark, it opens with the story of John the Baptist coming to witness and testify about Jesus. But John does something totally different. Finish this sentence for me. In the beginning... Ooh. Ooh. Hold on, let's try that again. In the beginning, I can't hear you, was the Word. Now that's funny because if I was a Jew, I would go, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John does something very interesting here. He opens with words that point right back to creation, the very first words of all Scripture. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. If I said once upon a time, what would you think? I would be telling you a fairy tale. John uses these words to the same effect. He wants to draw the Jewish mind, he wants to draw our mind back to the opening words of Scripture. In the beginning, before time itself, God. But he flips this around. In the beginning was the Word. And what does John do? He puts the Word in the same space and time as God, pre-existing before creation of life itself. He puts the Word before time. He puts, God, uh, puts the Word like God in a space where there is no beginning, no origin, existing before time and space. And so John is saying that this Word didn't just exist in the beginning. He was like God. He has no origin, he has no beginning. But he goes on. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. Now it's easy to just go, yep, there's God, there's the Word. But what John is trying to say here is that the Word exists in a particular relationship with God. It's not just simply that the Word was there and just hanging around with God before time, but that he existed in a relationship with God, that there was a personal relationship that, there, that was shared between God and the Word. And so we see the beginnings of an eternal relationship that existed and will last beyond time. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we will see how this unfolds. The relationship between God and the Word, we're, we're only scratching the surface. We will see how this unfolds through the Gospel. But John's not there, right? We're still in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the, uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you see what John's doing? In the beginning, God. He wants to take us back to the beginning. But instead of thinking about God, he puts the Word there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. He was in relationship with God. How does that work? How can this Word exist with God and be in relationship with God? Because he is God. Do you see the flow? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was there. And the Word didn't simply exist, he was in relationship with God and the way that that works is because he is God. The Word and God exist in relationship before time itself because God and the Word are one. And John, in, these, in this very verse, one sentence, introduces one of the most beautiful but also one of the most difficult and mysterious statements of the Christian faith. And that is the Trinity. Three persons, one God. Uh, the New City Catechism uh, puts it this way. We're actually going to look at it with the kids next year. Uh, but this is how they uh, describe the Trinity. There are three persons in one true and living God. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What is that trying to say? What is John trying to say? He wants us to understand that this word that he is introducing to us is fully God. 
But at the same time, God is not simply the Word. There is a distinction between the different parts of God. There is what, who with, what um, John's introduced to us. There is God, and as you go through the Gospel, it is God the Father. And then he introduces us to the Word. So there are the two parts. There is God the Father. There is the Word. There is a third part that John will introduce to us later, the Holy Spirit. And yet, somehow, these three persons exist in perfect divine unity as one being. And let me be honest, any attempt to try and illustrate this is just going to fall short, so I'm not going to. Um, But John will unpack what this looks like as we go through the Gospel. Don't try and wrap your head around it just now. But John will help us understand what this looks like and what this means. But he does want us to understand that this God is unique. This one God can be met and known and is distinguished by three persons. God the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people ask the question, why does that even matter? Why does the Trinity matter? Why do we even need to understand it? Why do we need to talk about it? How does this idea of God change things? Um, Kevin DeYoung, some of you might, be, might know who he is, uh, he, he summarizes it in this way. Three things. The Trinity demonstrates to us diversity in unity. The Trinity demonstrates diversity in unity. The Trinity reflects the eternal truth of love. And the Trinity matters because this is God. Let me, let me break those down a little bit. Diversity in unity. We live in a world today, in a society today, where there are some people who focus only on diversity. They see the richness and the, the, the uh, benefits of diversity, but they don't see how it all comes together. They, they see diversity and they're like, yep, diversity is great, let's, let's do that. But they don't see how things can fit together. Then there are those who are totally focused on unity and everyone has to be the same. Everything has to match. Everything needs to work together. And they're so focused on unity that they, re- they remove any sense of diversity. But when you understand the Trinity, what you see are three diverse and distinct, unique persons who work together in perfect unity. Do you get that? In the God that we have, the Christian God, there are three persons. They are distinct, they are unique, and they are diverse. But they exist in perfect unity, in perfect relationship. And so that becomes a model for us to go, yes, there is diversity and there is unity, and together we can come together because here is an example of that. And isn't that what our world needs? Isn't that what we need? to be able to find value in diversity, but also in unity. And so when we understand God, when we understand the Trinity, we can actually do that. Second thing, eternal truth about love. We talk about God being love all the time. right? We talk about God being love all the time, but here's the thing. If God is a single person, 
do you think the meaning of creating Adam and Eve is? If God is a single person and he creates Adam and Eve, what does that say about love? What does that say about God? Most people will say that God created Adam and Eve because he was lonely. That doesn't make sense. It makes sense if God is one person. But see, the thing about the Trinity is there are three persons in perfect unity, in perfect relationship. And that perfect relationship is filled with love. And so when God creates Adam and Eve, when God creates people, he doesn't create them because he's lonely or that he needs them. But instead God creates them so that he can demonstrate his love. And this is a love that was not created but existed before time itself. And so in the Trinity, in God, we have eternal love. Not something that's created, not something that's manufactured because love requires more than one party. And so in the Trinity we have this perfect relationship of love demonstrated to all creation, all people that existed before time. And so what does that mean? It means if we want to understand love and what love truly is, we only need to look at God because he exists in love. And that's why we say he is love. Not because the one person loves us, but because the God, three in one, loves each other perfectly. That makes sense. Lastly, it matters simply because the Trinity is the identity and revelation of God himself. If we're here talking about God, if we're here because we want to know God or we're seeking after God, then this is who God is. This is how he has revealed himself to us. He is one God, three persons. And if we want the world to know God, and as difficult and as mysterious as this idea may be, this is the only God that we want them to know. We want them to know a God who is in perfect union, in perfect unity with each person of the God Trinity. And that love can be found there. So that's why it matters. Uh, any questions at this particular point? I know I've just opened a total can of worms, but yeah, we're going to find them in John. So, and this is the thing, right? John does this deliberately. This is, I, I'm not talking about it because I'm just throwing it in there for for, for no reason. John is going to unpack what this looks like. He's going to unpack what it looks like for these three persons of God to relate to each other in perfect love. He's going to show us what it looks like for these three diverse, unique persons to come together. Uh, so we're going to unpack that as we go along. Uh, so I'm not going to answer that totally now. Um, but this is one of those moments in the Bible that you go, whoa, hold on a second, what are you doing? But John is bringing to light something that is deeply beautiful when we understand it. And he will do that as we go through. Um, yeah, I'm going to save it for another sermon.
Yes. Yes. That's a really good question, and I think that's valid. The thing about John, though, is he's not trying to tell us the history or the story of Jesus. What he's trying to do is, you've heard the stories of Jesus. You, you can go to the other Gospels, you can read them. See, check, check the facts there. What he's trying to do, though, is, here's Jesus. This is his life, and he will tell us parts of his life story. But what he's concerned about is showing us that after 50 years, this still holds true. This is still worth believing in. And one of the things I didn't mention is at the point that he starts writing, the church is actually starting to see trouble. The church is actually starting to the early days of persecution. And so John is not writing to say this is true. He's saying because this is true, it will still hold and make a difference today. It still makes a difference today because... After 50 years, things are changing. The world is changing and people do not like us. People don't like this Jesus. But John wants to tell us, hold on. You can trust him. You can believe in him. And I think that's why I mentioned that it's written 50 years after because he brings a totally different perspective. He says, I've lived through this. I've walked through this. And, you know, personally, one of the most encouraging and one of the most enriching blessings of the Christian life are actually the older people who have walked with Jesus for 50 years. It's those people who at the end of their life who sit down with you and say, Jesus is worth it. It's hard. There's been ups and downs. But his grace is enough. His love continues to amaze us. Those are the stories that I want to listen to. Uh, no offense to anyone here, but I, I'm not. your stories are still being told. Your stories are still being written. But the people who are at the end of their earthly life, they get to go, look at this life. Look at this life with Jesus. Wow! And that's what John is doing. John is saying, I'm at the end. He is Jesus. And he is worth your time and your life. Yeah? Good question. Any, any other questions before we move on? Don't, don't ever be afraid to ask uh, good questions. So in this one verse, John has established the identity of this word. This word existed in the beginning in relationship with God and was God himself. Verse 2 is basically a summary of that. But now that he's got that sorted out, he unfolds this even further. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He's unfolding this creation story even further. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what does John say? He, he says, God created the heavens and the earth and he did, does that through the word. Through the word, God creates all of life. And, and John wants us to make that connection. And it's, it's, it's no... It's not coincidence that John introduces 
this second person of the Godhead as the Word. Because what does God do in creation? What does he do? How does he create? Sunday school. What does he do? He speaks. You read every other creation story and there is something tangible going on, whether it's uh, moulding of something or giving birth to something. Or, but in the Jewish Christian creation story, God speaks things into existence. He uses words to bring life. And in the beginning was the word and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. I wonder if you get that. Disney recently remade the movie Aladdin. Uh, who's seen it? Any good? Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> One of the main characters of the story is the genie. The genie in the lamp. And the genie grants... How many wishes? Three wishes for the one who holds the lamp. And holding the lamp, one only needs to say the words and the wish would be granted. Any wish? No. There are limitations and conditions to the power that that genie has. Do you see what John's saying though? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word and through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made was not made. Here is the word that God speaks with unlimited power to bring into existence all of life. There is no condition, there is no restriction, no limitation on God. He speaks and life is born. And so not only do we see that the word is the agent of creation, but he is also the defining factor of creation. Because without him, nothing was made that has been made. So life comes through the word, but life is also defined by the word. Right? Through him all things were made, but without him, so anything that exists, anything that you know, anything you can see, anything you can touch, only exists because of the word that made it. So he defines life. Uh, one question that uh, people occasionally will ask, uh, and I've heard this again recently, how do I fit God into the busyness of life? Good question. How do I fit God into the busyness of life? The intention is a good one, but just listen to that question again. How do I fit God into my life? Just think about that one for a second. We're asking God to fit into our lives? That's human religion. That's how human religion works. How do I fit God into my life? How do I go to a temple? How do I go to a, uh, uh, an altar? How do I make the sacrifice that is right so that God fits into my life? How do I say the right prayer? How do I say the right formula so that God fits into my life? How do I do the right things so that God fits into my life? 
Do you see the problem there? And I'm not saying the intention's wrong, right? But it's like using cheat codes in a game so that you can do whatever you want. God becomes cheat code so that you can win at life. Rather than playing the game and experiencing life as it was intended. Here is the creator of the universe who speaks life into existence. Does he fit into our lives? Not really. I think the question should be, how do I fit into God's life? We come to the word, we come to these words. We come to the one in who is in the beginning, who exists before all time began. He is with God and through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made. We don't come to Jesus, we don't come to God asking how does he fit into our lives. We come to him who's created life and seek to understand how we fit into that. Because John goes on, verse 4, in him was life and that life was the light of men. Human religion tries to manipulate God to fit into human priorities. But when you come to Jesus, when you come to find life, That's what you get. You get life. Any questions before we move on? Keep thinking, keep thinking. But let's move on. And so in this word, we find life. Not just any life, but life that was the light of men, light of all people. Again, John is playing on the creation story. What's the very first thing that God creates? Light. In the word was life and that life was the light of men. John wants us to make that connection. The very first thing that all of life needs is light. Now, note that he doesn't create the sun, moon or stars till later. Light and those things are not the same. Side point. But what does light do? Light shines into the darkness and reveals what's there. And as long as there is light, there is no darkness. Darkness is not an entity of itself. Darkness is the absence of light. And that's what John says. The light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome or understood. It depends what translation you've got there. But John's also making another statement here. Uh, and you'll find that John is going to make lots of double statements uh, as you go through this gospel, which is going to be a nightmare for us. But anyway, John is making uh, a double meaning statement. Because depending on what uh, translation you've got, it says the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or has not overcome it. And both are actually right. Both are valid. Uh, it's the same word. It just has two meanings. But they tell us two things. Two very different things. Two perfectly valid things. That the word, that this light, will not be overcome by darkness. 
whether that's his enemies or generally just this broken world that we live in. The light will not be overcome by the darkness. But two, the word, the light, will not be recognised, understood by the darkness. So two things there. The light will not be overcome, but at the same time the light will not be understood or recognised by the darkness. And so I think there's three things, there's more I think you could say, but there's three things I want to kind of just highlight. This word... This light, it shows the way. That's what light does. You, you shine a lamp, a light onto the path and it, it lights the way. Um, who, who's driven at night, particularly out of a car park and forgotten to turn their headlights on? Now, around most suburban areas, there's probably enough street lighting that you can kind of go without realising that you've forgotten to turn your lights on. Right, but you'll get to that area where there's no street lights, and you're like, oh, and you'll remember to turn your street lights, uh, your headlights on. Um, going through life without the word is like driving at night without your headlights on. For the most part, you'll probably get through most of life with the dim street lights of the world. There's enough going on around you that you're like, oh, yeah, I can kind of figure my way out. But then you are going to find those times in life that are dark and the back roads of life and you just find yourself a little bit lost. And here we have the word, we have this light who shines into the darkness and lights the way. The psalm writes that your word, God's word, is a lamp for our feet, a light to our path. And this word that we're meeting here is the light that will shine into the darkness of life and show us the way. But the other thing is that this light will not be totally understood. We live in a world that wants nothing to do with Jesus. John says that the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it, doesn't recognize it. And there are going to be those in life that just don't recognize Jesus for who he is. Some think he's a good man, a moral teacher. Some even put him in a pantheon, an arena of other gods. He's just one of many. Some think that he's a fictional character made up by the church. Whoever they think Jesus is, they don't think or believe that he is who he says he is. Let alone the one who has made all of life. And we're going to see as we go through this gospel that when people encounter Jesus, they're going to respond in one of two ways. They will recognize Jesus or they won't. They will see the light or they won't and they'll remain in darkness. And those people who remain in darkness will eventually try to kill him for claiming to be God. But here's the thing. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. So there will be people who will try and get rid of Jesus. They will try and kill Jesus in his earthly life. But John makes it clear right from the beginning that the darkness has not overcome it. And for us, we can put our hope and our trust in Jesus 
because he will not be overcome by the darkness, no matter how great. Why do people buy Toyotas? They're cheap and reliable, that's basically it. They're cheap and reliable. They're not the most advanced, they're not the most stylish, they're getting a little bit better. But they're cheap and reliable, that's the heart of it. Right? That's why people buy Toyotas. You go to any uh, remote or uh, place in the world that has difficult terrain and you'll see a, a sea of Toyotas. The, the Hiluxes and the Land Cruisers, they're all over the place. People buy them because they're reliable. Now, trust in Jesus is not cheap and reliable. Instead, it's costly and everlasting. Jesus isn't overcome by the darkness. But instead, he overcomes the darkness by giving up his own life. And the light of all man, the light of all people, shines into the darkness. It overcomes the darkness by giving up its own life, going to the cross. John's got our minds in creation at the beginning. And what happens at the beginning? The serpent comes, deceives Adam and Eve, and everything falls apart. But God makes a promise that there will be one who comes who will crush the serpent's head and overcome him. And we look forward as well to the final battle. And this is what it says. I love these words. I saw heaven standing open. Remember, this is actually John writing, by the way. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was the white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This word that we're talking about now, that we're being introduced to, will sit at the head of an army in the final battle. Do you notice that his robe is dipped in blood? The blood of Jesus spilled on the cross will stay with him until the end of time to remind us that he is faithful and true and that he is the word of God, that he is the light the light of all people, and in him is life. Any questions before we start wrapping this up? Now, we've introduced a lot of ideas, we've introduced a lot of things, uh, and we're going to unpack these more as we go through, John. Uh, this is just an introduction, but we're going to unpack all of these things more as we go through. But even though we're just beginning, what difference do these truths make to us now? And I think there's three things that we can start with. We can discover who God is. When we do that, though, it should cause us to rethink life. And as we do that as well, we should surrender and trust life to God. One of the things that shapes life so much is our view of God. And how we view God impacts how we live life. If you're a parent and 
you struggle with your kids, number one here, your view of God either gives you hope or throws you into despair. If you have a God who is the ultimate example of love, then you can always come to him and seek him to understand how best to love your children. But if you've got a God who is a God that is rules and expectations and standards, your parenting will look the same. But here we have a God who loves us, who shows us grace and mercy time after time. And for the parents, that gives us hope, gives us an example to follow. At the same time, as you go through life, we wrestle with money, we wrestle with careers, we wrestle with work. What kind of God do you have? Do you have a God who knows what you need? who can provide what you need, who has created all life and defines life. Because if these words are true, that through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made and in him was life, why do we worry? Why do we stress about work and study and achievement? Here is the God, the word, who has made all things and in him is life. And maybe it's relationships. Maybe, maybe we, we wrestle with relationships, whether that's um, family or friends or, or other kinds of relationships. Maybe we struggle with those things. Well, what kind of God do you have? Do you have a God that defines relationships in a particular way that if you're on your own, you have no worth? Now here we have a God, three in one, who in himself is totally self-sufficient. Who in his own identity needs nothing but the other parts of his God relationship. Why is that significant? Because there's two things there. We find our worth in relationships in two ways. In our relationship with God and a relationship with each other. And it's not a relationship that is defined by your marital status, your, if, you're, if you've got kids or not. It's not defined by what you've got or what you bring to the table. No, this is a God in all three persons who relate to one another simply because of who they are. And so if our relationships are shaped by the idea that here we have a God, three persons who are distinct, who are unique, who are diverse, and yet able to come together, despite their differences and their particular statuses in life, if you will, yet they come together in perfect harmony and love. That should change the way we think about relationships. Because often worldly relationships are defined by what you bring, what status you have, in terms of your achievements or what you own and possessions that you might have. But in God, relationships are defined simply by the fact that you're there, not by what you bring and what you offer. And God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit exist in perfect unity, submitting to one another in love 
and upholding one another in love. And if that becomes our model for relationship, that changes everything. We no longer ask the question, or we should never ask the question, when you meet someone, what do you do? Because immediately you have based the person's worth in what they do. And it's a hard habit to break. Don't get me wrong. But see, the thing about God and understanding the relationship of each person of God in unity is that they are not based on what they do, but simply who they are. So, again, when we begin to understand who God is, it changes life. So what does that mean practically? It actually means that we need to know who God is. And not just random page flipping through the Bible to go, oh yeah, this is God, this is God. It's actually allowing God to speak for himself. Reading from the beginning to the end because he reveals himself in a particular way. And he reveals to us who he is. And it's not that complex. Now it might sound complex, but it's not. Because if you take the time to do that, you'll find who God is. Most of you have suffered through high school and literacy class where you do character studies. That's a piece of... Finding out who God is is a piece of cake compared to that. So open up your Bibles and read them, not just for the sake of reading them, but reading them to discover who God is. Because he reveals himself through words to us in a way that somehow we can all understand. But as I said, as we get to know God, it means that we need to rethink what life really is about. We need to think, not how does God fit into my life, but how do I fit into God's life? Once we begin to understand who God really is, it should shape the rest of our lives. It should shape the decisions and the actions that we make from the most simple things to the most extreme. We'll encounter some of these things more as we go through the rest of the gospel. But in the end, it still comes back to one thing. Will you surrender and trust him with life? Because that's what it comes back to. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made Through him, all life comes into existence and he defines what that looks like. The question is, do we trust that in him is life and that he is the life that is our light for life? The problem with words is that there's more to it than just simply the words on a page. There's all kinds of knowledge, ideas, history, culture, experience, wisdom and so much more that fill even these five verses that we've just looked at. God chooses to reveal himself though through words. Written, spoken, heard, felt and thought. But more specifically he reveals himself through the living word. Jesus Jesus the Messiah the Son of God and so there's more to Jesus than just these words on a page 
He is the source of knowledge, ideas, understanding and so much more. Because he is life and the light of all people. And so that's what I hope we will discover as we go through John. That here is Jesus, the word, the light. And as we get through it, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed, God's chosen saviour for the world. That he is the son of God. And that by believing in his name, you might find life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in words. You communicate with us. But above all, you have sent the living word, the Lord Jesus, who has given his life to overcome the darkness. And in him we can find life. And yet you have not left us alone on this earth, but you have given us your Holy Spirit who fills us and reminds us of all that belongs to you. And we ask that he will continue to do that. And we ask that you will continue to reveal yourself to each one of us that we might know you that we might begin to understand life from your perspective and that as we do that we might be willing to surrender and trust you with life. And so we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.